And now it's my great pleasure to introduce tonight's moderator, Mr. Warren Olney. Warren Olney. Warren Olney is the host and executive producer of the KCRW public radio program, To The Point. He also hosted Which Way LA, KCRW's signature daily local news program from 1992 until 2016. Olney and his programs have been honored with more than 40 national, regional, and local awards for broadcast excellence. He has received Emmy Awards for reporting and anchoring and golden mics for investigative reporting. Please give a very warm welcome to Mr. Warren Olney. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. You know, I've done a lot of interviews over the years, and if anybody had told me years ago that uh, one of the most interesting interviews I would be doing was about termites, <laughs> I would have said, forget it. I don't have that kind of time. I'm not going to be available for that one. Uh, no way am I going to do that. But this, this is very, very interesting. I want to introduce Lisa Morganelli, who is deputy editor at Socolo. Uh, Public Square. She has edited pieces written by me, which I really appreciate, and uh, hasn't changed them too much. She's the author of this book, Underbug, An Obsessive Tale of Termites and Technology. Her writings also appeared in The Atlantic and Wired and Scientific American and The New York Times and other publications, and as was just indicated, she got a great review this week in The New York Times for Underbug. So, Lisa Marganelli, great to have you with us. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to read, and this is the advanced copy. The, uh, the real copy looks a lot nicer than this one, but uh, I just want to read something for it, because this one really, this, this segment really struck me. Here's a woman who's written an obsessive tale of termites and technology, and she writes this. Three years into my termite obsessions, they finally tunneled into my life. She went to her place in Berkeley. I'm paraphrasing mostly here. And the door didn't work. The guy came in to check it out. She found out that termites had chewed through the beams while she slept. Now, this was Berkeley, California, remember. The wood was frail, lacy, collapsing like old cardboard boxes left out in the rain. My bug roommates had left a shabby set of shabby ruins for me, and here I was, living right on the Hayward Fault. <laughs> a good shiver of an earthquake could have brought the house down on me while I slept. So, the question I want to ask you is this. These termites risked your life. <laughs> right. Were you able to forgive them? <laughs> I was, uh, the weird thing was I was just totally fascinated. I was like, you know, I was like half an inch from their home in the beams going, wow, that's so weird what they've left for me. And then it was only kind of later when I was, you know, I took a whole bunch of pictures of it. It was only kind of later, years later, that I was like, that's kind of messed up. <laughs> I just was interested. I wasn't, I wasn't particular, I mean, I wasn't the homeowner. I had a landlord ah, who had to pay for it. Ah. But, so somebody so else's house was, was going to fall yeah, down. Yeah, there was it. a problem. <laughs> um, so, it, but it, I would have been the one who was pancaked, you know. So, yes. Uh, no, I just was like really fascinated by them. And then I realized that's kind of weird. It's almost like the termites have like sort of, gotten in my head, and now I sympathize with them. Well, that's why I asked you the question. And uh, what I'm wondering is this, you know, people make pets out of certain insects. Uh, my, yeah. my granddaughter just sent me some video of uh, somebody who had a bee crawling around on his mm -hmm. hand. She thought that was so cute. Mm -hmm. Are termites cute? Termites are cute if you get right up into them, but, um, but 
the popular conception of them is not that they're cute. I mean, about half the papers that are written in, by academics about termites are about how to kill them. Um, basically, everybody who studies termites at some level or another gets funded by Terminix, you know, which is about killing them also, and, or, or one of the other, um, you know, uh, insecticide companies. And uh, it's, uh, nobody thinks they're cute. If you see a cartoon of a termite, it's on the side of an exterminator's van. But if you mm. see a c cartoon of an ant, they're like looking adorable, and it's from Pixar. Mm. And, and bees, people dress their babies up as bees. But they don't dress them up as wasps <laughs> or, or termites. termites. No, they yeah. don't, no. Well, so what is an individual termite like? How would you describe it? Uh, well, termites are a neoteny. So they are the queen termite exudes a pheromone, and most of the, her Wait, children... What's a neoteny? Tell us what a neoteny. A neoteny, it means they never mature. It's kids. It's just they, they stay kids forever. The termites in the mound stay kids forever. Okay. It's a neoteny. They're, they're, so they, um, the pheromone suppresses their development, and they never grow up. Okay, so they look. <laughs> what is a what is a child like? What is a child termite okay, look so like? How what, would you describe it? Well, they've got like a big bulbous head. They look like a charpay, like right from the front, <laughs> except that they've got these huge. They've got mandibles and they've got palps. For, and the palps are sort of like fingers for pulling the food in, at, into their mouths. And the mandibles are for sort of chipping away at wood or other hard substances. And then inside, they've got various grinding plates, but we won't get into the inside. So they, they also have big, long antennas that have all sorts of sensors on them. They can, they can feel like an angle along the wall with their little antenna. And then um, they've got this weird sort of, and this is where they are sort of childlike, they have this weird teardrop-shaped body um, it's kind of undifferentiated. Like ants have two sort of waists, and wasps also have that much more articulation in their body. But the, the termites are just kind of little and weird. They're uh, sort of see-through. They don't have a their exoskeleton doesn't um, mature and get hard and dark, and they're never out in the sun, almost never. Um, so you do have to talk about the inside then. Yeah, you can see it. Yeah, you can see it. You can see their guts right through their exoskeleton. Ooh. What's going on in there? Well, they've got... <laughs> I'm glad you asked. Uh, they've got like uh, 500 different microbes in their guts that have been co-evolving with them for like 100 million years. And then those microbes can eat wood. And wood cellulose and hemicellulose um, are very sophisticated molecules that are... Their cages hold the sugar molecules. So. So these cellulose things have to be sort of chipped apart. And what, what termites have is basically they have like a molecular wrecking yard in their guts. The, the microbes have all kinds of enzymes that kind of pull up to the side of the cellulose and go and sort of break some part of it off. And that way they can get to the sugars and ferment them and use them for energy. Okay, what do they do? What do you mean? Well, what does who do? What, what does a termite do what, from day to day? You know, what, what, what's oh. its activity? What's it for? Well, <laughs> um, so basically termites go out. That they, it depends kind of what their task is within the mound. So, so termites Well, build here, mounds. Yeah, well, they build mounds. Okay, tell us about building the mounds. Yeah, so here they might just live in the side of your house, and they've mm. constructed a nest in the side of your house. But in Africa, uh, in Namibia specifically, the macrotermies will build these huge mounds that are 
like 15, 17 feet tall. And they're made of dirt. They're in scale to the termite, which is this big. It's like building the, uh, the Empire State Building or even the Burj Khalifa. I mean, they're enormous uh, in comparison, but they build it without a plan. So it, each termite takes a ball of dirt and puts the ball of dirt down, and then they come up with another ball of dirt, and they drop that on top of that, and they stack these until they make these frilly walls, and then they start packing those in, and soon they have this giant mound that has uh, vertical, uh, vertical holes in it, these wonderful organic sinuous shapes. And uh, some of those holes seem to be tuned to resonant frequencies, a little bit like an organ pipe. So the termites probably can kind of tell where they are in space by the sound. Termites are really into sound. They make sounds to each other, and they listen to sounds a lot. So that's one. They make, they make mounds. They tend to fungus underneath. That's about nine times larger than the termites themselves. Uh, and they, they tend it. They keep it alive. They, they keep it alive. They they do everything for it. They run out into. They they build foraging tunnels out of the mound in, in under the ground, and they grab grass, dead grass, and they bring it all back, and they chew it up, and they make these little balls, which they then stack in this intricate brain-like pattern, sort of like a cross between a. If you made a brain out of pie crust. That's, that's a good way to think of it. And then they inoculate those, each of those balls of half-digested grass with their fungus that they've been co-evolving with for 100 million years or 50 million years. And then that fungus begins to dissolve the sugars in the grass or dissolve the cellulose in the grass. And it makes sugars, which the termites come along, slurp off, and then they run off and they share it with their friends. So that's... So they live down at the bottom of the mound. Yeah, they live at the bottom. What's the mound for? The mound is essentially a lung. The mound ventilates. So by going way up into the air, they can catch the transient air currents that are moving around. And they get them to kind of diffuse the air through the mound in the top. And sometimes there's kind of a pumping action that's created by different things, but they'll kind of woof the air out. So there's that. So that regulates temperature and it keeps the gas mixture healthy for them. So is this so that termites can breathe or so that the fungus can be yes. maintained? Or it's what? the whole thing. It's the termites can breathe. Um, they need the right mixture of moisture to, for the king and queen who are living in a little capsule down amidst the fungus kind of. King and queen. The king and queen, yeah. Terminology we started that here came in from the, the 19th, instead of, 19th century. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. People are making a connection between us and the termites. <laughs> uh -huh. So what about the king and the queen? What do they do? Well, the king and the queen actually mature. So they are, uh, the, there are, in each mound, ten, each mound tends a group of termites who will not have their development suppressed. They, beca they become sexual reproductives or alates. And, Every year, uh, or a couple times a year, when it's a particularly moist night, they'll bust out of their, wherever they are, like inside your house in, in uh, California, or out of a log, or out of the side of the mound, and there will be these winged termites that take off. And those are kings and queens, and almost all of them get eaten. They're, very, they're fatty, they're nutty tasting. They're eaten by humans, they're eaten by chimpanzees. How do they taste? Do you eat one? Yes, I have. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they're fatty, uh, they're a little, uh, 
chitinous, you know, there's the, like, slightly bitter, but also, I mean, probably fresh. A little salt with them, is it? Yeah, you put a little salt. Someone gave me some freeze-dried ones. I haven't, like, picked one up off the ground (laughs) and put it in my mouth yet. (laughs) But you did suck some out of a a, a tube, got them out of a a piece of wood. Yeah, but you don't get them in your mouth, because there's this... That's a special thing. You have a, an aspirator that you can suck them up with the tube, and, and there's a little tiny air filter so that you don't get the termite in your mouth, and they okay. end up in a test tube. But back to the king and queen. Yeah, so the king and queen take off. Lots of them take off, and they barely fly at all on their little wings, and they just land, and they kind of hook up, and they break their wings off, and they scuttle off and find a new place to make a nest. And the weird thing is, is that they before they have their, you know, millions of children, they bite off the ends of their antennas because that reduces their sensation because they're going to spend their whole time like in this little space like this, just making babies. Down there with the fungus? Down there with the fungus. It's warm, it's moist, it's the perfect moistness. And then as their children mature, the children build the mound, but they also take the babies away. They take the the eggs away, and they tend the eggs. They clean them for funguses and stuff. And then those, all of those matured. It's really a weird world. And I can, you know, I can kind of see why in the 15 and 1600s, when people looked into them, Europeans looked into them, they were like, oh, this is obviously a monarchy. And, but then they took that one step further, and they were like, well, who would be in charge of a monarchy? It has to be a male. So they saw the queen as a male until that was kind of proved and proven otherwise. And, um, and then since then, you know, they've been seen as models of utopias, they've been seen as factory drudges. Uh, every, every they, like humans really look at termites, social insects, as like little humans in bug suits. And so some people are looking for like, this is our natural state. Our natural state would be to have a, a king and a queen that we support, even though they're useless for you know, doing things. Or our natural state is to be a factory where every worker is working. Uh, but, um, and so there was an assumption that all the little worker termites are doing the exact same thing, but it turns out that they're actually not. How come? They, the, um, some of the people who I followed in the book, some people from Harvard who were making robots, ended up designing a tracker where they could follow individual termites. It took hundreds of hours to design this tracker, and when they did it, they realized that uh, like 80% of the termites are screwing around. And, but that's not all. So 20% of the termites... That's what kings and queens will do. Yeah. Well, apparently, I don't know. Um, it was more like a Danish village, really. It was a, it was a good place to live. And, you could, and, and each one was actually an individual. They seemed to have personalities, and some seemed to be sort of charismatic leaders, and they would get the other ones to dig. And then they would, help the, they would get the other ones to pile their balls of dirt in a certain place, and they had memories. And that was like, whew. I mean, can you imagine five, five million termites in a mound with different personalities? <laughs> no wonder we imagine them as a factory. Like, it's nuts. So if you got one termite out and another termite out, would they do different things? Yeah, if you put them in a, in a Petri dish. Yeah. But the other thing is, is that two termites are really not like 50. Like two ter- 25 groups of two termites are not like 50 termites. 50 termites do different things than two termites do. And we don't know why, but the, it, there's this one of the big theories now is that termites all together are like neurons in a brain. And so possibly 
the termites sort of create like a cognitive system, and when there's 50, they're sort of doing, they have feedback mechanisms with each other, and they're kind of relating to each other in some way that's not explicit to us, or we, not even visible to us, where they have a sense of who they are as, as a group of 50 or 100 that is not the same as when they have two of them. I should have uh, begun really at the beginning of the book because uh, <laughs> she describes driving down this very straight road in Namibia, which was built for military purposes, yeah. and there are these enormous mounds on all sides. So there are a lot of termites doing this work. What are you, but you said a lot of them are just sort of hanging around. Yeah, well, we don't know whether they hang around all the time. We only had like a, an hour in their lives for this termite tracker, and so the, these people have gone back and they've captured more time in the termites' lives. And we'll see if they, if different, if termites from different mounds have different personalities. Is every mound the same? No. Uh, well, that's one thing we don't know. No, the mounds all look slightly different. They all look the same. They, in, in Namibia, they all kind of bend a little bit at the top, yeah. which is actually kind of lines up with the zenith angle of the sun there, because the mounds are always falling on the side that gets a lot of the rain and being built on the side that gets the sun. So they get this kind of distinctive curve. They're actually kind of a calculation by the, by the bugs. Um, but we just see them as curved mounds. So here they are. As I understand it, they have no brain. No, they have a brain. They, have they like, do have a brain. Yeah, they might have 100,000 or 200,000 neurons. We don't know because all the brain studies are done on bees. And uh -huh. so we don't know how okay. many brain cells, the, uh, right. how many neurons. They have what's called a mushroom body for mushroom. a head. I mean, okay. for a brain. For a brain, okay. Yeah. That's part of their, brow, All their right. brain. But they build with, you said earlier, no plan. What yeah. do you mean? Why, why would they have a plan? Well, like we have a plan. When we go to build the Empire State Building, we have architects in, in this building. And we, we, we have a plan, a mastermind sort of plan. But the termites are totally driven by feedback somehow. They have like a sense of, okay, I bring a... Uh, a ball of mud here, and I put it down because I'm following, we assume they're following certain rules because the only way we can think about a termite is as a video game because we're humans and we also have this, we have this mound head termite problem in our own heads. And so we, we assume that they follow rules as if they were a video game, but maybe they don't. So anyway, when they build, they build autonomously, and that's why the roboticists study them, because we want to also build, we would like to have robots that we could send into some place, like the Fukushima uh, nuclear plant, uh, that would build a wall to keep the nuclear uh, waters from us, without us going in there and having to say, put a wall here and make sure it's strong enough. We'd like them to, we'd like robots to just sort of do it. So. Not only are robots, look, roboticists, looking at termites, but so are computer scientists, physiologists, ecologists, synthetic biologists, physicists, geneticists, mathematical biologists. So that's eight <laughs> different disciplines yeah. in addition to the exterminators. What are they all <laughs> right. looking for? They're all looking for different things. Basically, like, termites have these two sort of amazing things. They can... They, can build autonomously, like as I was just describing, and they can eat wood. And both of those things are things that humans would like to do. So, we want to eat wood? Well, we do. We want to, build, we want to make biofuels so that we can stop using fossil fuels okay. and instead use fuels made from dried grass and 
old wood and books, newspapers, <laughs> if there are any. And um, so we would, yeah, we, we want to do that. And then the other thing that's come up recently is that um, there are big projects in, in Africa and in Australia where termites have restored land that seemed to be kind of dead. And so there's two things. One thing is how do you use termites to restore that land and how do, you, how do termites sort of maintain the fertility? And that's how you get mathematical biologists and ecologists involved in there. But um, the physicists also these days are all over the place, all through biology trying, trying to sort of crack the whip and say, do it like physics did it. Get yourself some rules. And the biologists are like, everything's mushy here. I mean, to, to paraphrase. So, <laughs> once again, let's go. There, yeah. there are a number of different types of termites, I take it. They're the yes. kind that build the mounds, they're the kind that chew up the beams and the ceilings yeah. in, in Berkeley and other places. How many different kinds? There's at least 3,000 kinds. And they're 3, all de ultimately kinds. descended from cockroaches. cockroaches. Yeah. How do we know? Um, well, we guess. Well, actually, up until uh, 2007, they were thought to be their own. Um, family, yeah. and then, but actually, people had been suspecting that they were cockroaches since the 1920s, and it was only once they did the sort of genetic studies on them that they realized that they definitely were descended from cockroaches. The other thing that's descended from cockroaches is praying mantises, and that's like a really different thing. So you've got these two very different, you know, evolution's amazing, but what the cockroaches, how cockroaches became termites, is that. Cockroaches were, you know, back in the dinosaurs' time, 150 million years ago, maybe a little before. They were running around. Uh, they would eat fruit or stuff. They didn't eat wood and grass. They started wanting to, or they started living in wood because it was safe. And in order to eat wood, they had to pick up microbes that could digest the wood. So they picked those up. And the problem is. Cockroaches shed their intestines. They molt their intestines. And that means it cleans, all, it cleans all their microbes right out. So they began to, one way or another, we don't know like whether the genes in the cockroach came first or whether the behavior came first, but they began to share what we call wood shake, which is really sort of butt juice, uh, with each other, and that's, I mean, they're really into trophallaxis. They eat from each other's butts. They swap stuff in their mouths. They're constantly grooming each other and, like, trying, like, give me a drop, give me a drop. And then they grab, sometimes that one will be grooming the other termite and somebody else will run in and grab their drop. So it's, I mean, it's a very competitive world in there for these drops. And um, they, uh, you know, that... So they became social, and then that's how they lost their big cockroachy exoskeletons. They started to share, pool their reproduction, pool their eating, pool um, everything about themselves, and that's, they became social. But, so the two things go together. But what's extraordinary is that somehow they all manage together mm -hmm. to build extraordinary structures, and also, as you indicated, yeah. to, uh, to uh, tear up the wood. This has been explained in a number of different ways as time has gone on. One of the terms that's used is superorganism. Mm -hmm. What does that mean, and how accurate does it sound to you? Well, uh, superorganism is like a great way to think of them because the termites work together, and they they perform sort of different parts of one body. So the mound is the lung, and uh, the termites, the worker termites, are like uh, the mouth, 
and the fungus or the termites pooled guts are more like a stomach, a collective stomach. Um, I think I mentioned they pool the reproduction. So all of this stuff is pooled and it's all kind of analogous to a body. Um, but then as a scientific, so as a, as a metaphor and as a way of understanding and thinking about how simple things become complex things or how we became how a bunch of cells glommed together and eventually became us. They're, they're very rich for thinking about, but the actual scientific concept of the superorganism isn't all that helpful. But it has kind of peaked, uh, it has uh, kind of peaked and, and fallen at different times over the 20th century. So it was very big, the superorganism was huge in the 20s. Then it became sort of like idea non grata from the 50s through the 60s and 70s. And recently, E.O. Wilson, who at one point was kind of anti-superorganism, has sort of taken up the superorganism again. So, but it's a really rich way of thinking about them. And there's a lot of debate going on about it all the time. Yeah, yeah. And analogies are being made, you've already made some, between them and us. Yes. So my wife, we're up on the Mulholland Drive, we're looking out at night, and here's all this traffic out there, and what she says, we're seeing beast consciousness. <laughs> yes. Are they conscious in that sense? Oh, we as in some cars sense? driving around have a certain beast consciousness. Yeah. Do is that analogous to the termite? Is well, it is analogous to the termite in a way, but we don't know whether termites are conscious. I mean, we don't always know that our fellow humans are conscious. You know, we... <laughs> so, we're, I mean, we're... Especially when they go to the polls, right? Yeah, well, I, I, I'm not saying anything about that. Um, so, but the, we, we know that they have some sort of group cognition, but that's not the same as consciousness. So we don't know what they... We don't know what they know, and it's a tremendous puzzle for us because we also are equipped with brains that have a physiology that are only capable of certain things, and they're... What's really interesting when the um, synthetic biologists are trying to make, they're trying to take genes from termites and other things in nature and put them into really simple organisms that can then make biofuels. So they, they've got this idea like, okay, a cell is a little bit like a computer and you put some genes in and it's like putting in some software and, and then bah, this little cell is gonna barf you out some biofuels. But what happens is, or what has happened over the last five or six years is that they've realized that they, they can't understand what's going on in the cell with their brains. And these are really smart people. And they are, have, they've tried ab doing abstractions, they've tried different models of thinking about it, but the cell is doing, has complex feedback mechanisms within it that give it a sort of, a bit of a will. It decides it's not going to produce the chemical that they want. It doesn't behave like a computer. And so some of the synthetic biologists have written these sort of plaintive notes in these really complex papers about uh, the question is whether um, we can abstract the cell enough so that a human brain can understand it, which is really like, you know, you start to realize like how we are sort of a, phys there's a physical thing that is our, that we are thinking with that is in some ways analogous to a termite mass. I took it the military is interested in termites. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Tell us about them. <clears throat> well, they're interested in how termites... Uh, the first thing I heard that they were funding was some work in Namibia about how termites have sort of group cognition because they wanted to understand how little things 
might be understanding a landscape as little parts, um, they might get some picture of the whole. Because that's obviously, you know, that's a, the military does things that for basic research and they also do things for applied research. And so that obviously has, it's very tantalizing as basic research and it's really tantalizing as applied research if you could send some little thing out across the landscape that would figure out who was there and who they were and exactly where they were and come back and report to you. Um, so that's a big deal. Uh, as time, so I hung out with these, these different groups of scientists over the course of eight to 10 years. It was a really long time, so I got to see like, their hopes and then you know, things that they succeeded with and stuff. One of the things that happened was that the biofuel group succeeded in producing two expensive biofuels that were really tantalizing to the military, um, pinene and uh, li limonene. And <clears throat> Uh, those can be used as missile, missile fuels. So what had started as this very optimistic biofuel project for where we would all be able to put you know, cellulosic ethanol in our cars and drive around and not have to change our habits or change our cars. Or, you know, there was like a whole sort of idea of what would happen or our politics. Um, that sort of ended up being adopted by the military for what, you know, what actionable technology has come out of it at this point. And then the very sophisticated robots, um, little robots that can fly or little robots that can autonomously build, little robots that can autonomously search an area are obviously very attractive to the military. I mean, they're drones. Um, so how would you use them for weapons uh, if they could swarm, for example? Well. Uh, <clears throat> some, one of the white papers hopes for billion, a billion little tiny robots that each cost a dollar, so you could sort of dump them from a plane or something like that, and they would go out and, and create kind of a map of exactly who's there. Um, other, other technologists have said, well, what you really need is a little tiny drone that carries a tiny payload that can just land on someone's head, sense who they are, and... and you don't, you don't fire a bullet, the drone just lands there and then boom. So, you know, that's, we're getting into scary stuff. But this yeah. is, you know, this is actually what, I didn't intend to go there. <laughs> just the longer I kept hanging out in this termite stuff, the more I sort of kept going further into what this stuff was headed towards. Um, and it also, it, using drones allows for kind of an abstraction of power that we don't, if we're going to be in Yemen or in Pakistan, we can send a drone that doesn't have a person in it because the politics of war in the US is based on who's, it, who's in danger and whether Americans are in danger there. And if you can send something technological over there, it reduces a lot of the barriers for leadership, and it certainly did during the Obama era. Um, they were doing a lot of drones um, drone strikes that don't cost that much in American terms. In so terms if we could lives. understand better how the termites do what they do, we could be better with drones, we could be more sophisticated, mm -hmm. more effective, more, mm -hmm. uh, more involved. Uh, there's also been some talk about using them for space exploration and mm -hmm. building things on Mars. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of things that you could do with these little drones. You could potentially fertilize crops, you could build things on Mars. You could, How, um, tell us you about could that. clean swimming pool filters. I mean, you don't even, it doesn't <laughs> need to be that exotic for it to be useful. And in fact, probably the, le the less 
exotic will be where we end up. But let's go exotic. Okay, uh, okay. all right. <laughs> okay, so why Tell would us they... about Mars. What okay, are they going to so do on Mars? Mars, Mars mm. you know, the soil... It, it, if, you, if you're an architect, you say, okay, I need uh, these blocks that have this spec, and they can hold this many pounds of pressure, and I'm going to put them at right angles. But um, if you were a termite, you would say, I'm going to get a mouthful of the dirt and moisten it with my saliva, and I'm going to plop it down, and then we're going to keep plopping these down until we've got a structure. And if the, one of the things about termites is they're not like, they're not like oh, this, this structure must be 99% uh, you know, sound. The termite mound either stands or it falls in the rain. And, so, and then they just rebuild it. And you know, if, if half the nest dies, they, they either rebuild or they don't. You know? And so they, it, the, the mounds have this kind of weird organic unplanned structure, yet they tend to prevail. And that sort of evolution makes them tend to prevail. So you could, you could send these little building robots to Mars, and they would maybe make like sandbags and out of Mars soil, and they would stack them up. And if the Mars soil you know, was all shifty, they would put more on until it, cre it was um, not so shifty. They could build sandbags in they could North sense, Carolina. Yes, they could sense what the local conditions were and how to build something that would stand up. So you spent 10 years uh -huh. studying this. <laughs> uh, tell us about what you observed, particularly in Namibia. A lot of the book is, is about what's going on there and how the scientists go from day to day. What, what, what do they do when they try to study the termites and and look at the mounds, and in one case, I think they even tried to manufacture a mound, didn't they? Or they, 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 uh, they spread the concrete mound. over it or something yeah, like that? Yeah, they filled the mound with, um, with plaster Paris. Yeah. They would sort of pump the mound full of plaster Paris, and then they washed away all the dirt, so they got this like negative of a mound, and it was like this fabulous thing that looked like bones, kind of. And the tubes that they had hollowed out were you know, thick at the bottom, and then they got thinner. And then at the very top, they're just like this sort of little, um, I don't know, it's this sort of, uh, it's just little tiny tunnels, kind of a lace through the mud. And they would usually cut the top of the mound off and send it to the junior member of the team who would spend time with a syringe filled with water, sort of washing this very delicate structure and losing their mind. Um, and the, big, the bigger sections of the mound would be sort of pulled out on a chain and uh, washed with, with water. Okay, and so, what's and the And then point? they would have the, well, because it allowed you to actually see what the, what the mounds looked like inside, a negative view of them. So instead of just, you know, people frequently um, have an idea of what the mound looks like based on having hit a hole through one place. And you just, if you just whack through one place, or if you, even if you really whack it down the center, you don't quite understand how it works. And so what they did to, to understand it more deeply is they'd fill it, one of the times they filled it with plaster Paris, and then they had a laser scanner and they cut like a millimeter at a time, so they got a complete model of the mound. And what did they learn? <laughs> well, <laughs> one of the things that they learned, um, they, they learned like what, they, they, tried, they were trying to understand how the mounds worked with air. And so they didn't fully understand that, and they ended up getting some physicists, 
to come in and build elaborate little sensors and put them all through the mound and then start testing the mounds rigorously with those sensors. But what they did do was they got a real idea that there were these big central tubes for air and that there were also all these little spongy tubes and that the spongy tubes were working more like alveoli of the lung. And I may be pronouncing that wrong. Um, it, they, anyway, they, they worked like the little pockets in the lungs and so they were sort of, when a puff of air came along, it would sort of puff through the mound like this and then there was a sort of a big whoosh through the big tubes. Is there any other creature that does anything comparable to this? Well, beavers and muskrats have re-engineered all of North America. But we understand them. Well, we think we do, but sort I'm of. not sure that we do. <laughs> but anyway, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, wasps build really elaborate nests. Yeah. Ants build incredible nests in all sorts of different patterns. Um, naked mole rats. They build nests. I don't know how sophisticated they are. But are all of those creatures being studied in the same way that termites are? For uh, Actually, ants and bees are studied more. Wasps are. are studied less. And the wasp people are a little hurt. Um, <laughs> and, and most of the studies on termites are really about how to kill them because termites also do sort of collect a collective immune system. Hmm. And so they're actually very, very hard to kill with biological agents, which is why we go to heavier and heavier poisons. Mm -hmm. And then you might know that they used to allow very strong poisons that are no longer allowed for killing termites. So that's... Talk a little bit, if you will, about the nature, what, what this exposes about the nature of individuality as opposed to the way that uh, people work work together. That's a lot of what you, you would talk about in the interviews that you do with the scientists uh, deal with these kinds of concepts. Yeah, so are you talking about the scientists working as individuals or are you talking about the no, bugs? No, I'm talking about the, the, the bugs. The bugs, are, yeah. Yeah, so, well, termites really... I know about the scientists. <laughs> yeah, so. well, some of the scientists work alone. I don't know why they do it, alone, but I know but about yeah, it. Yeah, some of them work in really big groups. Um, but uh, some of the... So termites are a kind of a challenge for, for very classic Darwinian evolution because the idea there is that individuals are sort of the unit of, of evolutionary selection. And the problem with the termites is, is that there's five million of them and only the king and the queen are the units of individual selection. So how do you think of them? Are, what, what is one termite? If you just have one, it can't reproduce, it can't really feed itself without its fungus or its microbes. You know, who is it? What is it in the world? Um, but as a group, so the superorganism was one way of conceiving of this, that the idea that one, one being could have sort of multiple selves. And then there was a, um, you know, there's a lot of fighting over that within the insect community over whether, how that unit of selection works, how the, the sort of math of, of how these things interact. But then now there's a, like a new wrench in that whole question because do we also count the microbes into the, the single organism? So am I me or am I me plus my microbes? And what is my, you know, what is my microbes in relationship to me? And then for termites, are, is it the termites and all the termites and all of their microbes in this sort of giant sort of hollow biome kind of concept and you know where is one 
and does one even matter? But I think at the heart of this is that there's like a really uh, evolving sense of how complexity is built in nature. So there's people who, and this is why the physicists are running around, because physicists are very interested in complexity and they have sort of ways of dealing with complexity that, uh, that are kind of useful in biology and sometimes also not useful in biology. But the, the, um, they are, everybody is trying to understand how do simple things make complex holes? How do you have local instructions and a big giant global mound? How do you have little parts that create complexity? Um, and how do these things move all through the landscape? So there's a lot of philosophy and, mm -hmm. and, and basic... Yeah, uh, I mean, there's microbial philosophers who are actually great. They study the philosophy of microbes. <laughs> but they don't <laughs> interview the microbes. No, they don't get to interview the microbes, no. no. No, they just have to guess. So what more do you think there is to learn from termites? Uh, why, why are people still studying them? Oh, well, I think there's kind of everything to learn. We still don't understand how they build the feedback systems that they use to build those mounds. And that's kind of like the, the people who study that. So that problem is called global to local. Like we don't understand how the local termite makes the decisions that build the great mound. Or if they're, they're not really making decisions, they have some you know, pattern or something. So we don't understand that. Um, and some of the people who study this field of physics and computer science and, and biology call the whole problem waiting for Carnot. Like they're, they're caught in this <laughs> absurdist play, like waiting, you know, waiting for Godot. Yeah. And then at the same time, they're wait Carnot is the guy who, who came up with the, theory of, uh, the theories of thermodynamics. So they're waiting for this sort of master theory to come in that helps them understand and predict what they're seeing. And you know, people have been waiting for this now for 20 years. So I, I happen to glom on to the last 10 and kind of watch, and bits of it are getting solved. Bits of the, the puzzles in synthetic biology are starting to get solved. Um, and when they do, we're really going to be in a different technological place. And we have some kind of moral decisions to make, I think. Of what sort? Describe. Well, we need to figure out, you know, uh, what, do we, what do we think about swarming robots? Is it, is it right for weapons to make non-rational decisions without humans being involved in the process? Is that okay? Do, are, we, are we okay with taking like an insect's sense of uh, like contingency, the way they make decisions? Are we all right with that? I would, say, I would say we probably aren't. But I think the bigger question is also, how do we get the technology that we want? Who, who decides? what technology gets followed in the lab or gets developed. Is it the scientists? Is it society at large? Who decides how it gets introduced or how it gets regulated? Um, and there's this kind of irony that if the military adopts a technology, we as democratic citizens can protest that. We can say, we don't want that. We don't want killer drones. And we can actually go to the military and they actually have to answer to us at some level. Um, Whereas with chemistry, the marketplace makes the decision. And so there was this very promising um, anti-malarial drug that was made with synthetic biology um, by a, a scientist in, in Berk, uh, Emeryville. And then Bill Gates took it on and put a ton of money into it, and it was going to go out into the world. And, and then the market ended up just kind of um, 
kind of flipping upside down and that, that chemis chemistry is now out of production and it didn't end up delivering this um, cheap malaria drug to poor people, which was what the dream was. And yet, one of the big successes in, um, in synthetic biology is um, sort of a spandex component that, you know, is actually made from corn syrup. So that you feed E. coli corn syrup and it spits out this stretchy stuff that then, you know, makes people's butts look good. And which is actually very kind of Darwinian, but also, <laughs> um, and you can see why it would succeed in the market, but like that's not the, I, you know, that's not the sort of technology that we dream about. Most of us. I don't, it's LA, I don't know, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> people so, dream about anything in LA yeah, and yeah, everything in LA. So what do you hope that people will get from your book? Well, first of all, Termites are amazing, and we don't know very much about them, and they reveal how little we understand about this changing world and how it really works kind of underneath. Uh, and then the second thing is, is that if you're going to become a little bit bug, you really need to kind of expand your idea of what a human is and really take responsibility for being human and think about what we're doing with this technology and what is the life that we want to have. So you want to get away from the termites themselves into something obviously hugely important. Yeah, yeah. But I also think that looking at termites makes you understand how important that is, or at least it did for me. Would you encourage people to look at their termites when oh, their yeah. house is falling down before they call Definitely. the exterminator? Do you yeah. think they ought to try to study them and see what's happening? Yeah, I mean, they're really kind of revealing and weird. Yeah. Uh, some. I live in Maine. We don't have termites yet. They're moving north. Like termites are moving all over <laughs> in, in response to human behaviors. The termites are moving. Um, and but somebody sent me like a little termite uh, terrarium kind of where they're eating some wood. And and yeah, I, I I watch them just about every day. I've only had it for a couple weeks, but they've already shown up in my dreams. They, you know, the termites are like talking to each other. They do this weird thing where they rock back and forth and they're signaling to each other. And I don't know what they're doing, but it's like, it's a good thing to watch and just realize like, I don't know how the world works. I should pay more attention. I think it's time for <laughs> you guys all to get a chance to ask some questions here. Yes. Round of applause for Lisa Marginelli and Warren Olney. <laughs> Hi, uh, Jeff Carr from uh, Silver Lake. I uh, was wondering if uh, you studied how termites fight or if they have territoriality oh, uh, yeah. as part of their life. Do enough actual uh, observation of termite fighting. That's probably my next 10 years. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, termites, so each, even when termites are the same species, each nest has a, what's called a cuticular hydrocarbon, which is like they, they've, they create a, a signature hydrocarbon that's on their exoskeleton. And that gives them a special smell. It's the way we can tell that an invading blood cell has come into our bodies. It's that sort of special smell. And then they'll run and attack that one. When, what it means on the landscape, though, um, in the dry savannas of Africa, is that each termite mound is sort of surrounded by a hexagon. And when the termites from different mounds hit each other, there's fighting and, or ignoring or something. Anyway, they return to their mounds, and so they ha each have this sort of weird hexagonal territory. 
Hi, my name's Debbie Seeley from Los Angeles. Um, you talked about a few things that you said, and I agree, are a little bit scary, um, some things that sound kind of like science fiction, um, things like moving mounds of sand on the moon and things like dropping drones on people's heads. I'm wondering how far away are we from that technology? And obviously there's ethical questions, but is that something that's happening soon or that's still pretty far away? Okay, well, the drone stuff, the big drone stuff is already happening. Like, we haven't noticed it, but it's all flying along the borders. Um, it, when I first started this in 2008, there were just, I think, two or three drones along the border with Mexico, and now I think there's at least 14. So drones have sort of, we haven't been watching, and the drones have been out there doing their thing. So, but that's big drones. Those are like predator drones. Um, the, we're pretty far from having a, we have test, we have, there's a little bee that can fly, that's a, that's a, you know, a little robotic bee that can fly and it can kind of see, and um, it has, it can kind of communicate in some different ways and people do swarming things for it. So what's the, what, what the, the, the time from a prototype to a real thing is a while. And we're you know, only part of the way through that cycle. But if you think to other things, um, Bill Gates' first um, sort of computer operating system was 1975, and 1995 was Windows 95. And there was another 20-year cycle from that first plane at Kitty Hawk to transcontinental um, airmail delivery and jets. So you have kind of, 20 years is a good unit of time to think about, and then you were you know, some slice of that already. So we actually should get moving on the ethics. <laughs> Next question. Hi, my name is, uh, my name is Lois Arkin. Uh -huh. I'm from the Los Angeles Eco Village in Koreatown. I'm really curious about bringing the termite discussion back home to our apartment buildings. And what I've noticed that is that they swarm at a certain time of yes. year. And otherwise, we don't see or hear That's anything. That's the nuptial flight. The, one, the, the sexual alates leave your building or the tree or something, and, and they all fly out, and, and just less than 1% of them will survive to form a colony. And that's when they start eating the wood again. Yeah, well, they are. If you have them swarming, you, they're probably eating the wood, and you just aren't seeing the millions of them that are eating the wood. <laughs> Did they come back to the same place? Um, they, they will inhabit each other's mounds. So yes, if, they, if, if the mound is dead and there's no one to fight them and somebody else lands on it, they'll go in and kind of take it over. Hi, my name's Neil Taylor. Um, the question really for me is ethics. And um, also, um, we do have a country with the largest military budget. And if we have over a billion dollars a year, won't eventually that money go further without humans? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, that's a problem. I mean, the idea of, of building a billion, a billion one-dollar drones, a billion one-dollar drones and flooding, uh, you know, remote areas with these tiny drones that are completely expendable to us is obviously very tantalizing to the military. It's obviously also a total pipe dream because they can't build anything, you know, these single prototypes cost, I don't know how many million. 
And secondly, uh, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, we need to start the conversation as citizens about drones. Um, the U.S. has been, uh, um, the, the U.N. has been having conversations about rules for drones, and the U.S. recently has been not uh, participating very much. So it's something you know to call your, call your. Uh, congressional leaders and ask them to tell them you're really upset about drones. They'll probably be happy to hear that you're not upset about other things. <laughs> um, at this point, refreshing. <laughs> Next question. Oh, hi, I'm Alicia Webb, and I always say I'm from Texas, but I kind of, I guess I'm from LA now. So Lisa and I are actually old friends, and so we were having this discussion on, um, on Facebook, and you know, and I said, I read an excerpt from the New York Times review, and I said, oh, so, in fact, termites are the Borg. But I'm wondering how apt that comparison is. You know, the Borg is the, is the Star Trek thing. And it's, so, you know, are, are, are all termites part of a collective brain? Are there individual termites? I mean, <laughs> how does that work? Oh, yeah, no, all termites are not part of the same brain. I think that's what, you know, makes it possible for us to live. Because in theory, termites outweigh us 10 to 1, according to some calculations. So for every, you know, 130-pound you, there's 1,300 pounds of termites out there, which is a lot of termites. Um, so they are not all communicating. However, our gut bacteria are talking to our brains, and we're getting messages. Whenever you're outside, you're getting all kinds of sounds of things are communicating with each other, and maybe they're communicating with our gut bacteria, I don't know. You know, there's like all sorts of communication and complexity going on that we kind of ignore, because we're like, oh, well, oh, I'm a human, I don't have to deal with that. And, um, and I, think, I think that uh, probably termites and microbes and understanding this sort of um, complexity and, and, and cognitive stuff it's probably going to start to change our ideas of who we are and, you know, in a philosophical way. But you said that two termites are not the same as 50 termites. Right. So there is, in fact, some kind of collective consciousness Absolutely. or collective necessity for termite behavior, right? Yes, yes. But, but five million termites and five million other termites are not necessarily thinking together. But they, they can occupy land together, different hexagons of land, and so, you know, maybe all of those have huge influences on the land that we live on. My name is Vladimir Artinov. Uh, I'm living in Pasadena, California. I had a question about uh, one of the writers and thinkers you mentioned, uh, E.O. Wilson, and the fact that you also mentioned uh, some emergence theory stuff and complex systems theory stuff. Uh, doesn't it, uh, or what are the other fields uh, of science, of philosophy, uh, of technological development that you think are influenced by these new understandings that we're gaining, uh, looking at evolved biological behaviors and how we can uh, apply them or find parallels uh, in human developed systems? Because it seems like there's uh, a lot to learn in the just fundamentals of how complex systems emerge from simple behaviors, but there's also uh, the human technological path toward complex systems and the uh, naturally evolved path toward complex systems, and a lot of it uh, is, uh, as this, the whole point of this discussion has been, has huge implications for the future. What mm -hmm. other areas 
uh, are really impacted by the lessons learned from these kinds of studies and, and this kind of thinking uh, outside of just technology development? Well, I do think probably there's going to be philosophical evolution about what what it is, you know, what what we are. Um, I think uh, the whole field of biology is changing pretty dramatically. It, there, there is in this uh, book. There's a I, I followed a, an ecologist who was doing kind of traditional ecology, and once he teamed up with a mathematical biologist, he was actually able to look at really big swaths of land and very complex things by using models. And one of the things I think is really interesting is how much we use abstractions to understand complexity. So abstractions are taking the complexity out of the complexity so that you can understand the complexity. You know, it's a... Um, and so uh, building the models then reveals insights about the world the way it is, which is really interesting, to, to reveal the way the real world is, because a lot of what is being done is people create prototypes or abstractions that are very abstracted so that they are essentially symbolic representations of what we hope is going on in the world, as opposed to models that reflect what might be actually going on in the world. So. Um, I don't know if that's satisfying for you, for what the question that you're asking. Stevie Meeks, I was just curious, in doing your research, were you in contact with uh, the pretty well-known entomologist that's a termite expert, Bernard Lewis? Yes. He's either at UC Davis or UC He's at UC Berkeley. Berkeley. Yes, yeah. early on, uh, I called Bernard Lewis and had we had a, a wonderful conversation, because I was like, well, I'm kind, of, uh, I'm kind of interested in termites, and I have a few questions. And, and he very nicely answered them. But, um, and I talked to a lot of other termite entomologists through the course of this book, but the book doesn't actually focus on the entomologist. The book actually focuses on what is going on um, with these other fields coming into biology. And so, but entomologists see bugs as bugs. These people saw them as all kinds of weird things, a force on the dirt. One of them was actually going to erase them from their scans and just look at the dirt. So. All right, before we close, I'd like to thank Gensler for hosting us tonight in their great space. A round of applause for them. <laughs> also, thank all of you for joining us. We're so glad to see you, and the party's not over yet. Please stick around for the reception just outside where you came in or in the lobby um, where we've got drinks for everyone. Also, Skylight Books is here tonight <laughs> selling copies of Lisa Marganelli's new book, Underbug, an obsessive tale of termites and technology, and I've read this one, and it's awesome. Um, and finally, a big round of applause for Warren Olney and Lisa Marganelli. Thank you.